I'm not sure I should reveal this, but uh, chances are high we may be singing this song again on Wednesday. I happen to enjoy this song. Listen to this lyric. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. You know, we can get so focused on the difficulties of life, and I think the Christian is first to um, uh, admit that, we, that life, is, life is hard. It's challenging. But praise God, we have God. Amen? Amen. And we should be thankful for all he has given us. It is really sad sometimes to hear the constant complaining and the objection on TV and news about how, what a rotten country we live in. We have, this world has never known a country more blessed and prosperous than we are. And we should give thanks for what God has done for us. That's not my message for today. That's, a little, that's available at no extra charge. If you would, please turn to John chapter 7 as we pick up our text where we left off. Now, you may have heard someone use the phrase ad hominem argument or an ad hominem attack. The phrase ad hominem is a Latin phrase that means to the person. Ad hominem means to the person. An ad hominem argument refers to a rhetorical strategy which attacks the person making the argument rather than debating the substance of the argument itself. Again, rather than debating the substance of the argument, the speaker who made the argument, is attacked. Here's an example. Let's imagine Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and he is going to bring common sense back to the Senate. He stands up and he explains that if Washington continues to print more money, money that it doesn't have, this will, will result in devaluing existing dollars and will cause runaway inflation. Well, another senator stands up and he says, I call upon this Senate to reject Mr. Smith's argument because he's a moron and he has B.O. That is an ad hominem argument. And it is not a valid argument because it does not address the substance of Mr. Smith's premise, but instead it attacks Mr. Smith personally. Today, as we return to first century Jerusalem, we will see a number of ad hominem attacks, and we will see that such attacks are nothing new. The Pharisees will show themselves quite expert at employing this tactic as they use bullying and name-calling to silence anyone who speaks in support of Jesus. As we return to Jerusalem, let's recall that the Feast of Tabernacles is drawing to a close. 
Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims have come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and we will remember that this celebrates the final harvest of the season. Jesus also came to Jerusalem for the feast, but he arrived approximately halfway through the week-long feast. And when he arrived, he went to the temple to teach. His teaching was not well received by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. In fact, after his last visit more than a year ago, the religious leaders had already decided to kill him. Now, here he was again with no formal training and without the permission of the Sanhedrin teaching in their temple. Their temple, so they thought. And as he taught... Not only the religious leaders, but even some of the crowds grew angry with Jesus. That is because Jesus repeatedly claimed that he had come from heaven and had been sent by the Father. In the passage we considered last week, several days had passed from Jesus' initial arrival. And John rejoined the action on the last day of the feast. And on the last day of the feast, Jesus gave an invitation. An invitation to come to him, that is to believe in him. Let's review that at verse 37. At verse 37, we read this. We're at John 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Today, our focus is on the reaction to the invitation that Jesus gave. After Jesus says, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink, we hear from the people who are gathered in the temple. And as we've seen in the past, the response to Jesus falls into two opposite camps. Some are in support and show signs of belief. But the other camp, not only opposes Jesus, they violently oppose him. Let's go, please, to verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The first group, after hearing Jesus, declares, truly, this is the prophet. Let's notice that they don't refer to Jesus as a prophet. If they had said a prophet, that would have meant that Jesus 
was one of many, making him a prophet. Instead, how do they identify him as the prophet? We heard Jesus identified in this way earlier in the gospel when Jesus was ministering to a northern Galilean crowd. After Jesus fed the 5,000 with a handful of loaves and two small fish, the crowds were so impressed by this feeding miracle that some of them declared, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Here, we see the same statement in Jerusalem. Truly, they say, this is the prophet. But there's a significant difference on this occasion. On the earlier occasion, on the earlier occasion, when the crowd referred to Jesus as the prophet, it was because they were impressed by the miracle that Jesus had just performed. But here, however, on this occasion in the temple, they are reacting not to, his, to a miracle, but to what Jesus has said. Remember, he is the living word. Notice how verse 40 begins. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard his saying. While there will be a variety of reactions that occur in Jerusalem, it is significant that what the crowds are reacting to are his words, his teaching, his argument for the kingdom. And specifically, they are reacting to that invitation in which Jesus declared, come to me. The people understood this was a messianic invitation. It was an invitation to follow him. When the first segment of the crowd reacts and say he is the prophet, they are likely referring to a messianic prophecy that was delivered by Moses. In Deuteronomy, verse 18, Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. Which raises the question, how would this coming one, foretold by Moses, be a prophet like Moses? The coming Messiah would be a prophet like Moses in the sense that the Messiah would be a deliverer. But we know that despite the desperate need, the desperate spiritual needs of Israel, Israel wanted a Messiah who would deliver them from the Romans, much like Moses adopt, uh, delivered ancient Israel from the Egyptians. However, another segment of the crowd seems to have a different, perhaps better, understanding of who Jesus is. In verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. When Jesus gave his invitation, come to me and drink, this part of the crowd likely had in mind the words that were chanted seven days in a row during the Feast of Tabernacles. We recall that the priest 
conducted a water drawing ceremony. And that water was poured out on the altar as a sacrifice to God. And the words were said from Isaiah, with joy, you will draw from the wells of salvation. It may be that this segment of the crowd understood that Jesus was not here to offer political salvation, but spiritual salvation. And so they say at 41, this is the Christ. But even as many are showing progress in their understanding, some may be believing in Jesus, they are quickly shouted down by another faction among the crowd. You see, unlike those who are drawn to Jesus and his words of invitation, there is a faction in this crowd and there is a faction in every crowd that will be opposed to anything, an unbelieving crowd. There will always be a faction that will shout down anything that is said about Jesus. No matter what Jesus might say, they are convinced this crowd here in the, in the um, temple, they are convinced that Jesus is not qualified. He does not have the proper resume. He does not have the proper pedigree. He comes from the wrong place, comes from the wrong family. Therefore, they make this argument. They ask at 41, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family? and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived. A similar argument was made a few days ago. When Jesus first arrived in Jerusalem, there were people who were saying the same thing. How could this be the Christ? He comes from Galilee. Now, this might be the same people. It might be a different uh, crowd. We don't know. But in either event, they're making the same mistake. They make a number of assumptions about Jesus while not knowing the true story of Jesus' background. They base their argument and therefore their conclusion on assumptions they have made about him. This is the definition of prejudice, is it not? They have prejudged Jesus without having all the facts about him. Like the members of the crowd from earlier in the week, these people show little interest in learning the facts about Jesus. If they had only asked Jesus, they would have learned that Jesus is the fulfillment of every messianic prophecy in the scripture. They begin their argument by asking, will the Christ come out of Galilee? But they quickly answer their own question, don't they? They conclude that, no, the Christ would not come out of Galilee. And they point out that scripture has said that Christ would come from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem. Their point is, is that according to scripture, the Christ would not come from the northern region of Israel, from Galilee, Instead, the Christ would come from the southern region of Judea, specifically from a town called Bethlehem. Well, it turns out their understanding of the scripture is correct, but their understanding of Jesus is wrong. 
Because if they had known Jesus, they would have known that he was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, which is in the northern region of Galilee, but he was born in Judea in that town called Bethlehem. And in fulfillment of the scripture, Jesus does indeed come from the line or seed or family of David. That is according to his human nature. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke present detailed genealogies that show that both Joseph and Mary are descendants of David. It is for this very reason that when Caesar Augustus declared that a census was to be taken, Joseph brought Mary, who of course was with child at the time, to the town of their ancestral heritage, to the town of Bethlehem. That was where David uh, was born, and so the, his descendants were to report there to be counted. And thus, in fulfillment of the prophecy given by Micah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But rather than making any effort to learn these facts, they rationalize their rejection by depending on their own false assumptions. Notice, not once anywhere in the Gospels do we hear anyone ask Jesus, Jesus, where were you born? We don't, we don't hear that, do we? But on the other hand, we don't hear Jesus responding to their objections that he's a Galilean and therefore he is disqualified. Not once do we hear Jesus declare, hey, let's set the record straight. I was raised in Nazareth, but I was born in Bethlehem. He doesn't say that. Instead, what Jesus does say and says repeatedly is that I have come down from heaven and I was sent by my father. The people are divided because of him. Some people have voiced their support, while some have argued in opposition. But it is the opposition party which is most troublesome, because some among the opposition party are not just opposed to Jesus, they are violently opposed. Once again, as happened just a few days ago, we're told at verse 44 that some of them wanted to take him, meaning they want to seize him. And that word seize has a violent connotation. They are going to seize him roughly, and they're going to drag him away. Why? Well, they most likely want to drag him outside of the city walls in order to stone him. They have decided he is not the Messiah, and therefore, like the religious leaders, they see him as a deceiver and a blasphemer, and therefore is deserving of death. But while they are ready to seize him, verse 44 also tells us that no one laid hands on him. We're not told why they did not lay hands on him, but we will conclude it is the same reason that we saw earlier in the week when the first crowd wanted to seize him but did not. It is because, according to verse 30, his hour had not yet come. Jesus will die 
but he will not die according to the timing of man, but according to the perfect plan of God. After John tells us that some in the crowd had it in their mind to seize Jesus, what we might call a citizen's arrest or better yet, mob justice because they're ready to drag him out and kill him. John now gives us an update, an update on the official arrest warrant that was issued by the religious leaders a few days ago in the middle of the week. Now, before we look at this upcoming text, let's go back and review this earlier arrest warrant that I just mentioned. To do that, let's go back to verse 29, please. Verse 29. But leading up to 29, Jesus just accused the crowd and its leaders of not knowing God. Because if they had known God, God the Father, they would have recognized God's Messiah. But they did not, and so Jesus says, you do not know God. And then at verse 29, Jesus says this about himself. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus repeats what he has already said several times and in several ways. He has been sent by the Father, and he has come down from heaven. With each statement of who he is, it is becoming increasingly clear to, clear to Jesus' listeners that he is not only making a messianic claim, he is making a claim of divinity. That is why many in the crowd judged him to be a blasphemer. In their, in their view, he was making himself equal with God. And that is why they think he has to die. That is why at verse 30, a few days ago, the crowd, this was halfway in the week, the crowd sought to take him. But while some were ready to drag him away and stone him, we saw then earlier in the week that some did believe in him. If you look, uh, have a glance at verse 31, it tells us that some believed in Jesus because of the sheer number of miracles that he was doing. They said, this Jesus is doing so many miracles that we cannot think of the Messiah coming to do more miracles than Jesus has already done. And so they put their faith in him. They believed in him. And when the Pharisees and the chief priests saw this, this burgeoning belief in Jesus, this is something they could not allow. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they formed this unholy alliance in order to arrange an official arrest of Jesus. Let's look, please, at 32, important verse. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring that they were believing in him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, notice, sent officers to take him. That's the temple police. They sent officers to take him. When we examine this verse, I suggested that the way to understand the action described here is that the religious leaders sent four 
the temple police. You see, while the religious leaders are on the scene in the temple, the temple police were not immediately present, and therefore the officers, the temple police, had to be sent for and instructed to put Jesus under arrest. The reason I made this suggestion is because if we will turn now to 45, verse 45, the temple police now appear before the religious leaders, and it's several days later, and they're coming to give their report. And here's what happens at verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The first thing we will want to notice is that the Pharisees do not address the substance of the statement given by the officers. They say, no one has ever spoken like this man. They don't address that claim. Instead, what do the Pharisees do? They attack the officers personally. It is an ad hominem attack. We will surmise that this scene that's being described here, it doesn't take place in the temple, or at least not in the temple courts. It may take place in the council, in the temple, but in one of the council chambers, in a, in a, in a private room, because there are the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're expecting Jesus to be brought before them. Now, the period of several days that have elapsed between the order to arrest Jesus and now at the end of the, the, the um, Feast of Tabernacles, it's three or four days later, that elapse in time, that difference in time is not explained. But it is possible that while the officers were given instructions to arrest this man, they were given some flexibility so that they could do so at a time when they might not arouse some physical resistance among Jesus' supporters. They didn't want an uprising as Jesus was arrested. So they gave him some flexibility to arrest Jesus. But when the, uh, when the officers came into the council chamber, the religious leaders were expecting Jesus to appear before them, probably with his hands bound, under arrest. But it's the temple police who come empty-handed. They don't have Jesus with him. And so they're told to explain. The chief priests and the Pharisees demand to know, why have you not brought him? Well, the answer that comes from the officers is surprising. They make no mention of the crowd, they, they voiced no concern that they were, they were afraid of provoking his supporters and causing a riot. They don't make any mention of that. Here's what they say. No man ever spoke like this man. Let's make two observations. 
First, what impresses the soldiers is not what Jesus does, namely his miracles. What impresses these temple police is the strength of Jesus' words. Second, what is emphasized by the soldiers is the uniqueness of Jesus. Look again. No man ever spoke like this man. In other words, there has never been anyone like him. And as they report that no man has ever spoken like him, there may be in those words a profound implication. Since no one, since no man has ever spoken like this before, they may be implying that this man is more than a man. After the temple police give their explanation why they have not made an arrest, there comes an immediate challenge. And what is notable is that although the temple police came under the authority of the priests, the temple police answered to the priests. But it's not the priests who now reprimand the temple officers. It's the Pharisees. Then the Pharisees, look at verse 47. Then the Pharisees answered, answered them, the temple officers. Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees, have any of us believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Let's notice that the Pharisees do not rebuke the officers for their failure to perform their duty. They make no reference of their failure not to bring Jesus before them. Nor do they address the substance of their argument. What is their argument? No man has ever spoken like this before. Instead, they accuse the officers of being so gullible of being so stupid that they've allowed themselves to be deceived. Notice what they say. The Pharisees, they confront the temple police, and here's what they say. Are you also deceived? Notice the word also. Are you also deceived? You see, what they're implying, and what they're accusing the temple police of being or doing, is that they are just as gullible and stupid as the Members of the crowd who have believed in this imposter, this deceiver. Are you also deceived? Are you temple officers so stupid that you've joined along with these ignorant people in the crowds who believed in Jesus? Now the temple police were traditionally and usually drawn from the Levites. As you may recall, according to the Mosaic law, the temple priests, the priesthood, were drawn from the Levites. That is from the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The temple police were also drawn from this tribe, the Levites. And so as members of the Levitical class, the temple officers were not only expected to enforce the law, but to know the law. Of course, we're talking about the Mosaic law. And so the Pharisees are implying, hey, as members of the temple police, you should be smart enough 
to recognize a deceiver when you see one. Now the Pharisees, they don't know if the failure of the officers to make an arrest means they believe in him, but that makes no difference to the Pharisees. They're going to continue to belittle and intimidate these officers. The Pharisees do this by highlighting their own supposed superior knowledge, right? Where they're going to compare how superior they are to these ignorant officers. Let's look at 48 as they confront the officers, and they've got a sarcastic question for, for, for them. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Hey, have any of us believed in him? The implied answer is no. The ruling council of the Sanhedrin, they haven't believed in this deceiver. Priests haven't believed in him. The Pharisees certainly have not believed in him. And what they're saying is no smart person, no important person is going to believe in this deceiver. What are you people doing believing in him? Morons. Because the Pharisees implied that the temple police were just as gullible as the crowds, the Pharisees continue to press their point. Now they're going to direct their ad hominem attack on the crowd. And this attack on the crowd is meant to further threaten the police. At 49, they declare, but this crowd, meaning the crowd that believed in Jesus, that does not know the law, is accursed. And so the Pharisees are explaining the reason why some people in the crowd have been deceived. They say that the people who believed in, in, in Jesus, they don't know the law. You see, the smart people, like the Pharisees, they recognize that Jesus is a deceiver. According to the Pharisees, based on their superior knowledge of the scripture, they're sure Jesus is disqualified. This is not the Messiah. Therefore, the Pharisees warned the temple police that those who believe in this deceiver are accursed, meaning God's judgment is on them. Now, the, the irony here is thick, isn't it? Because all who believe in Jesus are not accursed. They are and will be forever blessed. In reality, it is the Pharisees and all who oppose Jesus who are accursed. After the Pharisees belittle the temple police and make clear that none of the important people, none of the smart people like the rulers or the Pharisees have believed in Jesus, a key character we met earlier in the chapter, uh, earlier in the gospel, I mean, now reappears. And who is that? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Look at verse 50, please. Nicodemus... He who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law, said to them meaning the Sanhedrin, he's speaking to, he's addressing the Sanhedrin. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? After the Pharisees rebuked the officers, by saying no smart or important person would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, one of the most important men in Israel, one of the most important men in the Sanhedrin, steps forward. 
Nicodemus. The religious leaders condemned the crowds for not knowing the law. That's why they're deceived, they said. They, they condemn the crowds for not knowing the law. And now Nicodemus steps forward and points out it may be they, the Sanhedrin, who are not obeying the law, who are ignoring the law. He asks rhetorically, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And so we see here another example of irony. These men, were meant to be the guardians and the safe keepers of law, and yet they do not keep the law. They've already condemned Jesus, and they've even decided to kill Jesus, even though the law first requires a trial. But since the law does not suit their agenda, they've decided the law does not apply to them. Let's notice that John identifies Nicodemus by using two details. First, he is described as he who came by night, and second, as being one of them. In chapter 3, when we first met Nicodemus, he was identified as being both a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews meaning he is a member of the Sanhedrin. He, Nicodemus, is just one of 70 men who, along with the high priest, oversee all the civic and religious functions of Israel. The Sanhedrin is the equivalent of our president, Congress, and Supreme Court wrapped into one. The job of the Sanhedrin is to interpret and to enforce the law. Now, they were given a fair amount of authority by the Roman government because the Sanhedrin did prove helpful in helping the Romans maintain the peace. But a key restriction placed on the Sanhedrin by the Roman government is that the Sanhedrin was no longer able to affect the death penalty. It did happen unofficially. People were killed by the religious leaders in the first century, but that was on the, on the slide, okay? Officially, the only person who could order somebody to be uh, given the death penalty was the Roman governor, who we know at this time is Pontius Pilate. When we first met Nicodemus in chapter 3, I think that we agreed, after carefully considering the text, that Nicodemus did not come to Jesus because Nicodemus was a curious and potential convert. It is often said that he was a potential convert because he came to Jesus when? At night. It is often said, well, he, he came at night because he didn't want his colleagues in the Sanhedrin to know. But as we looked more closely at the text, it became evident that Nicodemus actually came as a representative of the Sanhedrin. And this is based on Nicodemus' own words. He said, Rabbi, we know, not I know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. 
we know, meaning he and his fellow members of the Sanhedrin. Now, I suggested at the time that he was engaging, Nicodemus was engaging in a piece of disingenuous flattery to ingratiate himself to this man before he sought to correct him. It is likely that Nicodemus came at night because he didn't want the public to know that the Sanhedrin was meeting with this Jesus. The Sanhedrin knew because Nicodemus was their representative. But that requires the question, why did Nicodemus come to meet with Jesus? Well, let's recall what happened immediately before Nicodemus came to meet with Jesus. Nicodemus came immediately after Jesus entered the temple, flipped over the tables in the temple, and drove the money changers out. And it is then that Jesus gave a prophecy about the temple being destroyed. But as John told us, Jesus was speaking about his own body being destroyed, and that after his death, three days later, he would raise it again. But the religious leaders thought he was, destroy, he was threatening to destroy the temple. So Nicodemus didn't go to Jesus because Nicodemus was a potential convert. Instead, I submit that Nicodemus went to warn Jesus about causing any more trouble. It was then that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. Didn't address his objections. What did Jesus do? He spoke to the soul of Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. All people must be born again. And we remember that Jesus had a dual meaning when he said that. You must be born again also means you must be born from above. And Jesus went on to describe the role of the Holy Spirit in this new birth. When that first encounter ended... We were, not a told, we were not told what effect that meeting had on Nicodemus. But here, in chapter 7, we may have a clue what kind of effect that had. You see, the last time we met Nicodemus, I submit that Nicodemus went to challenge Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is challenging the other members of the Sanhedrin. We will interpret this as Nicodemus coming to the defense of Jesus, but we'll notice that Nicodemus does it with great caution. I say that because he doesn't come right out and defend Jesus personally. He doesn't say, I have believed in this man. No. Instead, he speaks of ter- in terms of a legal principle. He uses a rhetorical question. And he points out that according to the Mosaic law, it would be illegal to condemn this man without first holding a hearing, without first conducting a trial. (laughs) But these men, they're in no mood to hear God's law. They have no interest in, in living by God's law. They want to kill this man. 
They don't want to hear about the right thing to do. They've already made up their minds that this man deserves to die. And so rather than conceding to Nicodemus, you know, Nicodemus, you might have a point. Maybe we should rethink what we're doing here. Do they do that? No. What do they do? They launch another ad hominem attack, this time against Nicodemus. Look, please, at verse 52. They answered and said to Nicodemus, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. You see, they attempt to shame him, to silence him by suggesting there might be some kind of connection, some kind of collusion between he and Jesus. And so they ask him, are you from Galilee? Now, Scripture does not tell us the birthplace of Nicodemus, but it is likely that he was born in the southern region of Israel in Judea. Only then would their sarcastic question bear any weight. If they knew he wasn't from Galilee, it would be to accuse him, to belittle him. (laughs) Are you also from Galilee that you would side yourself with this this carpenter's son, (laughs) this Galilean? to make sure that Nicodemus makes no attempt to suggest that this Jesus, this despicable Galilean, might be the Messiah, they then issue a challenge. They say to Nicodemus, search and look, meaning go to the scriptures and see that no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Well, their response to Nicodemus' objection is not well thought out, either because of their hatred for Jesus or their attempt to silence Nicodemus or both. They fail at their example. You see, they're suggesting that there's a legal precedent here. They're saying no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. Therefore, this Jesus, this Galilean, cannot be the prophet foretold by Moses, and therefore he cannot be the Messiah. But they've overlooked the fact that at least one prophet was a Galilean, the prophet Jonah. Scholars think there may be other examples of prophets who were uh, born as Galileans, but we're not certain. But about Jonah, we are absolutely certain. He was a Galilean. But even if there was just one exception It negates their entire argument. It renders it false. And so what we've been given today is a behind-the-scenes glimpse of the wicked strategy used by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They use both ad hominem attacks and false information. And as we know, it is no different today. The enemies of Christ will attack Jesus and will attack those who believe him with insults and lies. But we must never shy away from our responsibility to speak the truth. Because as Jesus told us, all who believe, Jesus has given us living water. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says about this Holy Spirit out of the believer's heart will flow rivers of living water. We are to share the Holy Spirit with others. We are not the source of the Holy Spirit, but we will attract others 
to drink of the living water in this dry and thirsty land. Let's pray. Lord, in this coming week, help us to be thankful most of all for the gift of Jesus Christ. He gave his life so that all who believe will have eternal life through him. Lord, help us this week and in the weeks ahead to be bold for you, to tell others there is life and hope and mercy in Christ and in Christ alone. Some may thank us, some may curse us, but either way we are called to be rivers of living water. Amen.